we have a tremendous uh, blessing to hear God's word preached from my friend David Williams. Uh, David and I share the fact that the Lord rescued us uh, at the same age. He was 26, so was I. Um, he has served the Lord in, in a, a variety of ways. Uh, he has been a pastor. He has served with crew. Uh, he has been the chaplain for the Cincinnati Bengals. And today he serves with uh, a number of pro-life organizations uh, and even has partnered with one of our partner ministries, Thrive Orlando. He is an itinerant preacher and member evangelist with Next Generation Alliance, which is a Luis Palau ministry. And uh, David partners with various churches and college ministries locally and nationally. And he's often invited to speak to churches about the gospel and race, which is what he will be speaking about from God's word uh, to us this morning. Uh, David and his wife, Taria, have uh, six children. Uh, they live here in Orlando, and David also has an adult son living in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Uh, and it is uh, my great privilege and pleasure to welcome to the pulpit this morning my friend, David Williams. Come on up, David. Good morning. It is a blessing to be here with you this morning. Pastor Matt has been a dear brother and a good friend, and he has been very supportive to me throughout the years, and so I count that as UPC being very supportive and encouraging of me. And uh, as we get started this morning, we're going to hear a message that's called, uh, The Gospel Gives Us a New Identity as a Unified People. So I'm first going to read from the scripture, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 12, then I'll pray and then we will jump in. The word of God reads, therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together in a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Let's pray. Well, Father, we bless you, and Father, we praise you, and Father, we thank you for your goodness, for your kindness, for your mercy, for your grace, for your unconditional and unfailing love towards us. 
Father, we thank you that you sent Jesus to reconcile us to yourself. And we thank you that we now have peace with you. But we thank you that in Christ you have reconciled us as brothers and sisters into one body. And we now have peace together. Father, I pray that by your spirit you would minister to us this morning. Father, I pray you'd manifest your presence to us. Father, I pray you'd move us in our hearts uh, to live in a manner that is reflective of the gospel that you have entrusted to us. So hide me behind the cross. Fill me with your spirit and use me to minister to your church this morning. We thank you, God, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As I stand here this morning, I um, am blown away when sometimes I think of history. And I think of the fact that I am the grandchild. My, my maternal grandfather and grandmother were sharecroppers. And so uh, my ancestors were slaves in Columbus, Mississippi. And I think of the blessings that God has given to me uh, in this nation. And I think of uh, just the great things that I have been able to do coming from a people that at one time were enslaved. Um, the fact that I have a college education, um, the fact that we are able to gather together as brothers and sisters in Christ and, and there's no signs or anything saying that that can't be. Um, for we are the people of God and we are one. I've had the privilege of being able to minister in African-American congregations and to be on staff, so I'm used to the amen you're giving me. But I've also had the privilege of being the pastor and being called to be a pastor of an all-white church. And one of the reasons that I accepted that calling is because of what I'm going to preach to you this morning, that this gospel that has given, been given to us is radical. It's taken a people that at one time were dead and it's made us alive. It's taken a people that were alienated and separated from God and it's brought us close. And it's taken a people that at one time hated one another and brought them to live in relationships of love. You all know we live in the midst of a world, in the midst of a nation where there is great racial tension and there is great ethnic strife. We just know even in the past few weeks from the George Floyd trial, there has been just great controversy when it comes to race and issues of equality and, and issues of justice. We live in a country that has been entrenched um, throughout our history with a history of slavery that lasted 240 years and unjust and unequal laws, Jim Crow laws that lasted another 90 years. And for the past 60 years, there has been legislation and laws that have been trying to be brought about to bring about equality and justice for all of the citizens of our nation. And it seems like no matter what is done, whether it's governmental policies, whether it's economic reform, whether it's educational reform, whether it's teaching theories or philosophies on race, or whether it's diversity training, it just seems like we keep running into this same old thing over and over again. It seems like we get better and it seems that we're past our race problems, but then all of a sudden it seems like it pops up all over again. Because the problems that we're dealing with when it comes to race, when it comes to ethnicity, they're not social problems. At the very basis of them, they are sin problems. They are problems that, are, that come from the human heart that only God, by the gospel, can transform and only God can change. It's, it's the, the answer for the 
things that we're facing won't come through any of the things that people are looking to. The answer to what we're dealing with can only come through one entity, one organization, one organism that's living and alive, and it's the church of Jesus Christ because we have the only message that brings peace, and we have the only message that brings unity, and we have the only message in which there is true and real love that flows from the heart of God. The gospel is the answer. But yet we live in a world where more and more the church is not even talked about when it comes to discussions of race or ethnicity. The church isn't talked about. Why is that? Because even though we the people of God, we have this identity in Christ, we're not living it out. And we look so polarized when it comes to race, when it comes to political preferences, when it comes to all these things. We look as polarized as the world looks. And yet we have this message of reconciliation, but the world doesn't see it in us. We talk to them about a God who is holy, who sent his son to die so that sinful men and women can be reconciled to a holy God. And he's done away with the hostility, but they yet they still see us living as if we're separate and living as if we're divided. And so the church, we've lost our voice in the midst of the culture because we're not living out the reality of who we are. When it comes to these issues of race, we end up taking sides. We take sides whether we're white or we're black, and then we take sides based on that. But we need to realize that we have already taken a side, and it's the side of Christ. And Christ has called us to step into these situations and spaces and to minister to all that are involved, black communities that are hurting, whites that are dealing with different things. We're to step in, not taking sides, but taking Christ's side and being willing to let him use us to minister his gospel, his hope, his healing, his love, his blessing to those around us. I had a friend who I sat down with recently and, and a white friend of mine, and he said, David, it breaks my heart when I look at the things that are happening in the world. And David, how do, how do these things make you feel? And I say, yeah, it breaks my heart when I see these things over and over again. But I said to him, you know what? I'm not shocked by it. I'm not shocked when there's hostility in the world. I'm not shocked by the fact that there's injustice in the world. I'm not shocked by the fact that there's racism in the world. But what shocks me and what grieves my heart is when we, the church, don't look any different than the world. When we, the ones who are called to be the light of the world, living out in darkness, we should be shining in this hour. They should be looking and saying, how in the world can you all love each other with everything that's going on? But yet they don't say that. There's words that Martin Luther King said back in 1963 and 1968 that are still true today. The most segregated hour in America, he said, was 11 o'clock, but still the most segregated hour in America is whenever the church is meeting on Sunday, Saturday, or whatever day we're meeting. And, and we don't seem to have the answer for what's ailing our world we just present the gospel as it's something that has brought me and God back into a relationship with one another instead of seeing that the gospel has done something so much greater. I would attest that as a church, we really have forgotten what our identity is. We're not living out our identity in this world, and so we're not having the impact in this world that Christ would want us to have in the hour in which we've lived because we've forgotten our identity or we're failing to live it out if we know it. And so when I think of that, I think of a couple of illustrations. I think of uh, an eagle that had an egg on a cliff, and the egg fell off the cliff. It didn't break, 
and it fell down and it went into a, uh, to, to some hens. And a hen sat on the egg and the egg hatched. And so this little eaglet, he uh, thought he was a chicken because he saw all these chickens around him. So he did everything chickens do, right? He clucked. He had wings and he could really fly, but he didn't know he could because they had theirs and they didn't really fly. So he just did what they did. They just got the food that was thrown to him. And that's what he did. And he just had this low level of living when he was actually created to be soaring, to be soaring. And one day he's out with his mother and the other chickens and he sees this eagle flying in the sky and he looks up and he goes, Mom. When I grow up, I want to be just like that bird. No, he goes, Mom, what is that bird? She says, it's an eagle. He said, well, when I grow up, I want to be like that eagle, and I want to fly like that. And she looked at him, and she said, boy, you'll never be like that eagle. Don't you ever give it another thought. And he never gave it another thought. You know, it, it's sad when you live below your birthright. It's sad. This eagle that was made to soar is living like a chicken, and it's sad. I remember one time I was playing football in high school and I got knocked out, had a concussion. My brother played on the team with me and so my coaches come and they're smacking me in the face to wake me up. And so finally they, they get me up and they, they count how many fingers they have and I counted the wrong number of fingers. They say, what day of the week is it? I said the wrong day. Then they ask me a question, who's uglier, you or your brother? I said, I am. And I really am not uglier than my brother. But you know what? I forgot my identity. It's foolish when you forget your identity. <laughs> But then we think of our country and this great country we live in with a godly heritage. But yet there are some things in it that undermine this godly heritage. I remember Martin Luther King, and we hear these speeches of Martin Luther King. And Martin Luther King was pretty much confronting America to be who you say that you are. That of all people that are created in the image of God and endowed with these unalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, why do we have this long history of slavery? Why have they have this long history of unjust laws? Why are 20 million Negroes languishing with less than subpar living in this land of milk and honey? It's hypocritical when you say one thing about yourself and you live a different way. Maybe you're here today. Maybe you don't know your identity. You're living below your birthright. Maybe you're here today, and you just, maybe like I was, and you just forgot. Or maybe you'll realize as we go through God's word, we've been hypocritical, and we need to repent, and we need to live out the reality of who we are, because the world needs Jesus, and God put us here to take Jesus to this world. Humanity is deeply divided. It's not just now, it's always been. Paul writes the letter to the Ephesians. He writes the letter to the church in Ephesus. He read, met in many different homes in many different places. He writes a letter to this church, mainly primarily made up of Gentiles, but also Jews as well. And Paul is warning these Gentiles and these Jews to recognize who they are, not just who they are as individuals in Christ, but also who they are collectively in Christ so that they could live in a radical new way and they, their lives could be exemplifying the Christ that they're going to preach to the people around them in their town. So Paul starts out here in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. He says, therefore, remember, speaking to the Gentiles, that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel 
and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. These verses highlight the hostility that there was between Jew and Gentile, a deep divide. If you ever read a book by John Piper called Bloodlines, he says this is a deep divide, deeper even than the divides we see in our nation today. For this was a religious divide. This was a racial divide. This was a cultural divide, and it was a deep divide. We can see some of this divide by the term that was used towards Gentiles. They're called the uncircumcision. The Jews would call them that. And it was a derogatory term that the Jews used to show that the Gentiles were outside of the covenant community. See, circumcision was given to the Jews as a sign. As a sign, it was given to Abram as a sign to show that he believed the promises of God. So the people that came from Abram would be circumcised, and it was a sign. But the sign was to point to the reality that they believed in the promises of God. But those who became circumcised over time, they no longer believed in the promises of God. They began to live as the other nations, and we see them going through things like exile, and they're taken away because circumcision to them was just a sign. And, and it didn't bring forth the reality of real faith and trusting the promises of God that would lead up to Christ. But it was something in their flesh that caused them to feel as if they were superior to these Gentile nations. And because these Gentiles were not Jews, according to their flesh, according to their birth, they were by birth inferior. So you got this, the Jews feeling superior because of this sign in their flesh, circumcision, and the Gentiles feeling inferior because of the fact that you're just not a Jew. The Jews were given a privilege. The Jews were given an advantage, and that advantage and privilege was given to them by God. They were circumcised. They were given the very words of God. To the Jews belonged the adoption, the glory, the laws, the worship, the temple, the promises of God. To the Jews belonged the patriarchs, and to the Jews, belonged the, they were the race through whom Christ would come into the world. There was an advantage given to them. But their advantage was not for them to treat others derogatory. Their advantage was given to them that they were to live as a light in the world, that the nations could look to them and, and see God and see God's nearness to them and see God's activity to them that would cause the nations to want to know this God. But they were living below what they they were supposed to be living and all it became now was this sign of circumcision and you're not circumcised and we're better than you the Gentiles were disadvantaged they were separate from Christ they were separate from Old Testament Israel salvation is from the Jews the Gentiles had no expectation of a Messiah the Gentile had they had no rights of citizenship in Israel by their birth they were strangers to the covenants they didn't know the promises. Though there were promises given, there were promises even for them, they didn't know the promises. They didn't know that the promise that was given to Abram was that his seed would be one that would bring blessings to all nations of the world. They were without hope. They didn't have any expectation of any future good coming to them. And they didn't have a relationship and they weren't near the one true God. They worshiped false gods and they worshiped idols. But both of these groups were living according to the flesh, and it alienated both of them from God, and it alienated both of them from one another. The Jews' privilege, it made them feel like they were near to God, 
and it caused themselves to see themselves as superior to the Gentiles. And the Gentiles were far away. Verses 13 through 18, there's a divided humanity that is reconciled in Christ and brought into a unified community. So verse 13, it says, but now in Christ Jesus, speaking to the Gentiles, now, formerly, you were just looked at as uncircumcised. Formerly, you were separated from Christ. Formerly, you were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. Formerly, you were strangers to the covenant of promise. Formerly, you had no hope and you were without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That God sent his Messiah into the world and he sent him first to preach the gospel of the kingdom to the Jews, but not exclusively to the Jews, that this message of being reconciled to God and have a relationship with God would come to the Gentiles, that those who were afar off could be reconciled to God by the blood of the cross. And then he goes on in verse 14 and he says, he, Jesus himself, is our peace. That there is this hostility that both Jews and Gentiles have one with God and with one another, and Paul says, he, Jesus, is our peace. Not just brings an end to the conflict. He's our shalom. He's the one who's to make life everything that God intended for it for it to be. He's to make life the way that God intended for it to be lived. He's the one who would bring harmonious relationships with God and harmonious relationships with one another. He is our peace. He has made us both one. That no longer are you Jewish believer in Christ and Gentile believer in Christ. Two, looking at yourself as Jew and Gentile, you are now one. You are now one. And what has been divided you has been broken down in Jesus' flesh, the dividing wall of hostility. What brought hostility to them was by evaluating one another according to the flesh. That brought hostility. What brought their peace is what God would do by sending his son, the image of the invisible God, by sending him into the world to be the image of sinful flesh, yet be without sin, to live a life of perfection, obeying every law of God and obeying God all the way to the cross to satisfy God's wrath that we all deserve because of our disobedience and rebellion against God. That he in his flesh that would be torn and his blood that would be spilled out so that we could have forgiveness, he would tear down the wall of hostility between God and us. It would be torn down that we would have access to be in the presence of God. But because he now becomes our identity, that we no longer identify with those things we once identified with. He's our identity. And in him, he becomes our peace. And the hostility has been torn down. Verse 15, it says, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. What is this about Christ abolishing the law? Because I thought Christ came to fulfill the law. No, he comes to nullify the law. He comes to make the law null and void in this sense. See, Jews 
they would thought that if they could obey the requirements of the law, they would be made right with God, but they could not obey the requirements of the law, and they found themselves under condemnation. Jesus would come and do what they couldn't do, and he would fulfill the law, and he would make a way for them to be right with God by fulfilling every jot and tittle of God's law. He would nullify the law as a means to salvation because the law could never be a detergent for their sin. It only detected their sin and amplified the fact that they still found themselves separated from the God they thought they were so near to. But it also abolished the law in this sense. In the law, God gave some laws that helped the people of Israel to realize that they were distinct from the people of other nations. They had food laws. They had ceremonial laws. They had Sabbaths and, and different things. And, and those things that made them distinct from the Gentile nations. Now in Christ, he would be the one who made them distinct. And no longer would there be laws that caused Jews and Gentiles feel like they're separated from one another. Christ was now the fulfillment of the law, and it was in his crucified flesh that he accomplished the annulment of the law, that he might bring into existence the new humanity of which he himself is the head. So no longer were they to look at themselves as Jew and Gentile. They were to see themselves with their new identity. And what's their new identity? Christ. Christ is their new corporate identity that they share together, that it's not their ethnic group. It's now Christ. He is their identity. Galatians 3, 26 through 28 says, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now we know that these distinctions were not completely obliterated, but what God was saying is that whatever you thought gave you an advantage and gave you a one-up with God, that means nothing before a holy God. Whatever you thought gave you a disadvantage and kept you to be so very far away from God that you could never get there, that doesn't matter anymore. Because there's only one way for you to have become a child of God. There's only one way, and it's through faith in Jesus Christ. So the ground at the foot of the cross is level. There is no big eyes. And there are no little use. There is only one king and one Lord and one God. And he is the one who is to be praised. And his kingdom is what we're to live our lives for. They had a new identity, Christ. It didn't negate their ethnic groups. It didn't negate their cultural difference between the ethnic groups. See, even though their identity became Christ, Gentile Christians were not expected to become Jews. They didn't have to do all the food laws and the ceremonial laws or keep the Sabbaths. And Jewish Christians didn't have to give up these things. That there still was a diversity, but yet they needed to realize that Christ was over all. So if there was ever a time that they were coming together for worship and being together, then, then they would, for the sake of Christ, give up certain things for their fellowship. That, that the life that God gave for us to have to live in unity is one that we're called to live together. 
And so God would give them certain things that when they got together, that, that the Gentiles, for the sake of their fellowship, they weren't to eat things among the Jews that would cause the Jews to say, you're crazy. And the Jews would be certain things that they wouldn't demand of the Gentiles because table fellowship is what God expected of his people. He expected his people to live their lives together. He expected them to live their lives in such a way that the watching world would look at them and say, how can you, a Gentile, live with you, a Jew, because of this great thing that has been done and this great divide that has been overcome and the wall that has been knocked down and the peace we've been given by God and this new identity we have in Christ. So the distinctions weren't obliterated, but there was something greater. It was faith in Christ. Verse 16, and he says he might reconcile us both to one God, to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. These Jews and Gentiles were reconciled to God in the body of Christ through the death of Christ. They weren't reconciled to God from many different, in many different bodies. There wasn't a, supposed to be a Jewish church and a Gentile church. There was one church. In our day, we say things like the black church and the white church, the Hispanic church, the Asian church. Do we know there's only one church? It's the blood-bought church of the living God, the one that Jesus shed his blood for, to reconcile us all back to God in one body that we could be members together and brothers and sisters in a family, and a family is supposed to call to live out their love together. They have been reconciled to this one body. Verse 17, and he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. The advantage group, the Jews who had all these different things, the same gospel was preached to them. It's to the Gentiles who had none of these things. Because what made anyone right with God was faith in Jesus Christ and what he had done through the cross to reconcile the world to himself. As I said, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Verse 18, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. They had access to the Father through one spirit. They could come into the presence of God the very same way, and that way was Christ, who would be baptized by this one spirit into one body. And because of the fact that our union is with Christ, that we all have access into the presence of God together. And this would have been radical for Paul writing this then when there's a temple that's still standing in Jerusalem. There's a temple in which there's this wall for Gentiles in the court of the Gentiles that says that if any foreigner passes this wall, they do it at the peril of their own life. And then there's Jews who can come a little further in and the priests can go into the holy place. And then there's one place in the temple, the most holy place, where only the high priest can go. And he can only go one day a year and he must present the right sacrifices to go into this place. And then Paul is saying something radical that both Jew and Gentile and not just the high priest have access to come into the very presence of God. And you come in through the one spirit through which you have all drawn and has made you members of the very same body. Verses 19 through 22. Those who are reconciled in Christ are now citizens of God's kingdom and they're members of God's household and they're God's dwelling. Verse 19 says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So he's writing to people who are looked at as second class. 
disadvantaged. They've been looked down on. And he says, no longer are you strangers and aliens. No longer are you like an illegal immigrant who has no rights. No longer are you like an alien with a visa who only has customary rights. Now you are considered a full kingdom with all the rights and privileges that come to you because you are citizens of a brand new kingdom. And the citizens of the kingdom that you're a part of has no geographical boundaries. It's not bound by one nation or one people group or one tribe or one tongue. This kingdom that, that you're a part of and that you're citizens of is heaven. You are awaiting a savior, Jesus, from heaven for him to bring his kingdom. And we are citizens of that kingdom that they now shared a status that they never shared before. And it was equal to the status of others. And it was all because of Christ. Do you realize that what Christ has done for us trumps every earthly status in our life? Do you realize that? Do you realize if we're citizens of kingdom, that trumps nationalism? That trumps ethnocentrism? That trumps racism? That trumps religious pride? Do you realize there, that, that no earthly status comes close to comparing to the kingdom that God has brought us into? And our ultimate responsibility as ambassadors of Christ is to bring that kingdom to bear in this world, in this nation, throughout the nations, into the various people groups throughout the world. You know, when we prayed the Lord's Prayer earlier, what did we pray? God, your kingdom, let it come. Your will, may it be done on earth as it is in heaven. Then we jump to Revelation and we see this great multitude that no one can number. People of every tribe, every people group, every nation and every tongue who are serving and worshiping the lamb who was slain for us and the God who sits upon the throne. May that be the vision to which we live for. May that be ever increasing that the diversity of people in this one body of which Christ is the head, who has become our peace, who has given us unity and has torn down the wall, may we increasingly be living in a way that reflects the reality of this unified kingdom with a diversity of members. See, God didn't do away with our diversity. You know, I hear some people say, you know, brother, I don't see color. Well, God made us different colors. And sometimes when we say we don't see colors, it becomes odd that we often find ourselves with people of the same color since we don't see color. You would think it would get mixed up since we don't see color. But God sees color and God sees ethnicities and God wants us in the midst of a world where there is strife between color and ethnicity to be loving one another across those, those boundaries. That when people look at us and say, how in the world are y'all loving one another the way that you do? They need to see the reality of a love that left from heaven and came to earth and invaded this world and stretched out his arms and died for us and tore down every wall that stood in our way that forgave us and gives us the grace to forgive one another so that they can see God's love and they can see the reality of the gospel that we preach with our lips lived out in our lives in an ever increasing measure. But we need to recognize who we are if we let this lead the forefront, we're always going to be in fights. We're always going to be in conflicts. But if we let Christ in our front foot be the gospel, and our front foot be citizens of a kingdom, that we're called to see his kingdom coming to bear in every community, whether we're a part of that community or not, then we begin to see God's transforming work through us, his church, in ways we never thought of before. God revealed this mystery through the apostles and the prophets. 
There were shadows that God was doing something even in the Old Testament, but it wasn't made clear until Christ and Christ came to make it clear that he was coming to have a kingdom from people from all over that could be a part of his loving community, living in family and showing forth the reality of Christ to the world. And that Jew and Gentile in Christ together would be God's dwelling place. Isn't that amazing? You think throughout the Old Testament where God would show up with his Shekinah glory. He'd show up in a burning bush to Moses. You know, he'd be with them through a pillar of fire at night and a cloud by day. He would be with them in the tabernacle, and yet everybody couldn't come close, but his presence would be in the midst of them. And then there would be the temple that would be built up. And then Jesus would come, and he would be the word who was made flesh, who would tabernacle among us, and the very presence of God was fully embodied in, in Christ, and he's invading his world. And now God says, guess what? Guess who's my temple on earth now? You're my temple, my church, you're my temple. The reality of my presence is to be shown forth through a church that is living out her unity and walking in love. You're my presence on earth, and you're to show forth the reality of who I am in this world. Let me give a few points to ponder. I might have hit them already. Let me. We, too, at one time were alienated and hostile towards God and towards others, every one of us. We have a commonality. We're all created in the image of God. Every one of us have value, dignity, worth. It doesn't come from anything about us. It's intrinsic value that comes from God. We're all descended from the same man, Paul would say in Acts 17, 26. For this one man, he sinned. Sin has entered into the world. Death has come. We have all sinned, and we are all deserving of death from God. And when sin entered into the world, the right relationship we had with God was broken. The right relationship we had with one another was broken. And so our identity became reflective of many different things. Our ethnic groups, our color, our political party, our family unit. These became the basis of our identity. And so there would be fights that we would have keeping one group wanting to have power, another group being disadvantaged. We've seen this cycle throughout history of these fights for uh, privileged groups longing to fight to keep the privilege that they have and groups that don't have privilege longing to find justice and equality. And we see these fights and, and no longer, as, as, as much as we see them, no matter what is done according to the flesh, we never see this cycle come to an end but God is the one who, through what he did through Christ, said, I have obliterated this. I have made a brand new people. I have made a people who have a new identity who is me, and you're to live this out. We think of this issue of privilege. Think of Jesus being the one who has more privilege than any of us have ever imagined to have because he's God. Jesus being willing to lay down his privilege to leave from the glory of heaven where he was ceaselessly worshipped by angels and to come into this broken, fallen world, to go to a cross and to die for our sin, he would become a slave and he would come to serve the humanity that deserved the judgment of God. He would lay his privilege down and through his death raise us up that we could have access to God, a relationship with him and a relationship with one another across these lines of division. Israel failed to live out her privilege. Christ came to be the fulfillment and to make that privilege possible for all nations. But then we think of our world today, and we think of groups that have privilege, and we think of our nation. 
and there are groups that have privilege, and many of you probably heard the term white privilege. You think of our nation. Is there a privilege whites have? I do believe so. You look at a history of a nation where you've had people in slavery and for 200-something years and unjust, unfair laws for 90 years, and then laws begin to change. So if it were a race, one, one group was running, and they're running around the track, and they run multitudes of laps, and the other group isn't even invited to the track, and they're tied up, and they're thrown into another room. But then things change, and they come out to the track, and they start running, and we say, now you're, you can do what I do. Run just as fast as me. Well, you've been running for years. I just started running. So when we recognize that privilege has come because of things that have been done, then we need to stand in the gap, and we need to repent. We need to ask God to forgive us for these things that have happened so that we can begin to move forward in what God has for us, letting his forgiveness flow to us. We now have a new identity in Christ together that transcends our culture and our ethnicity. You know what? If we don't see our ultimate identity as being Christ above our culture and our ethnic group, then we'll continue as the church to live as if we're divided. But guess what? If you're a member of the body of Christ, if I'm a member of the body of Christ, we're not divided. We are unified. That's the reality. The question is, are we living out that which is true of us? And if we let anything take preeminence and precedence over Christ, we will fail to live out what is true of us. We should not expect others to assimilate to our culture. There's unity in Christ, but there's not uniformity. There is diversity in Christ. So in the kingdom, you know, we live in a world where we say majority culture, minority culture. In the kingdom, what's the majority culture? There's no majority culture. It's a kingdom of people of different nations, tribes, people, groups, and tongues. You know what the culture of the kingdom is? It's Christ. Christ is the culture of the kingdom. So we need, as we live out this thing together, not expect others to assimilate and it to look like a uniform, but to have a beautiful diversity in the midst of our unity. We should respect and accept our cultural differences, but they must take a backseat to Christ. Anything, anytime anything of our culture gets in the way of us worshiping, living together, walking with Christ, then that needs to take a backseat so that Christ can be preeminent. Love triumphs over liberty every time we may have liberties to live certain way but if it causes a brother to stumble then love needs to take the priority over our liberty and christ always takes precedence over our comfort here's another thing we need to realize that we are god's members of god's family with christians from other ethnic groups listen to this so all of us have earthly families right if you have members in your earthly family that do not know Christ, there should be not more allegiance to them than to another member of the body who may be a different color for, from you because now our family membership is Christ. We're part of his family. So your family might not understand why you do certain things because I'm a part of a new family. I've been given a new identity. I have new values, and I've been called to live a certain way. And your family members may not understand it. Jesus' family members, according to the flesh, they didn't understand him. You remember they're coming for him when Jesus is out, and they said, Jesus, your mother, your brother, your sisters are here. And Jesus says, who are my mother? 
Who are my brother? Who are my sisters? Those that do the will of my father, they are my brothers, my sisters, my mother. Do we see our relationships in the body of Christ like that? That we're to be stepping beyond these boundaries to love people that look different than us because they are members of the eternal family of God who we are called to love. And together we are God's dwelling place. So let me end with this. You know, we always think, what's the apologetic for the world to see that Jesus is who he is? We think if we can, you know, do all these apologetics and we can answer every question the skeptic brings to us, then we'll get, we get it. Jesus gives the apologetic in John 17. He says, Father, you and I are one. Make them one as we are one. He prayed that we would be brought to complete unity. Why did he pray that? He says, bring them to complete unity so that the world will know that the Father sent me. How is the world to know that the Father sent Jesus by the church living in unity? So when we live divided across lines of race, ethnicity, po politics, the world isn't seeing this Jesus who God sent, who he loves and loves us. The world will know by the unity of the church that we're called, Jesus gives a great commandment, love one another as I have loved you. So shall you love one another. And he says, by this, the world will know that you are my disciples by the love you have one toward another. So if the world only sees us loving people who look like us, that's not the radical work that Christ did on the cross. That's not the radical reconciliation he has made for his body. They ought to see something among us that calls them when the government says, what do you want us to do for you? They ought to say, I want to look like them, the church. I want to love like they love one another. I want to live like they live with one another. So my challenge to you today, we hear a message like this and we think, how does this happen in the big corporate body of Christ? How, what does that mean for UPC? Do we need to change worship? Do we need to have different people coming in? And my challenge for you is this. How are you living with people that are different from you according to the flesh? Some that are brothers and sisters in Christ. Are you having fellowship with them? Are you getting to know them? Are you getting to know them so you can love them and have relationships with them? So that God can grow and cultivate something that when the world sees you. Sometimes I'm out with just one brother. And, and we may be out at a coffee house or at a restaurant. And we'll be praying together and we'll be talking together. A brother of a different race, a, a white brother. And, and, and I, I, it amazes me how many people come up to us as we talk and fellowship and share our lives and share Christ and share our love for one another and pray for one another. How many people will come up and say, man, that is so, so beautiful. Because in our world today, it stands out. It sticks out that one relationship at a time. Are you willing to take those steps? Are you willing to humble yourself? Are you willing to confess some of the things that maybe have brought privilege to your life that have disadvantaged other people. Are you willing to say, God, 
I want you to do a radical work in my heart, in my life, in my church so that you are glorified. We got to get beyond this thing that it's about us. This is about Jesus. It's not about uh, our denominations. It's not about our political preference. It's not about our race for us. It's about Jesus. That's who we should want the world to see at the end of the day because he is the only name given under heaven by which men might and must be saved. Let's pray. Well, Father, thank you. Forgive me for my rambling. Thank you, Lord, for your spirit at work, even in the midst of it. And thank you, Lord, for ministering to your church. And thank you, Lord, for showing us those things that we need to repent of, ways that we haven't walked worthy of this gospel. Help us to do that, Lord. And help us to step across what the world sees as, as boundaries and lines, but things that you, for the Christian, have already obliterated. And you have already torn down. Let us not think as a church that we got to build bridges for race relations. Let us realize that you have made us one new humanity in you, that you have become our peace, and that we are now your children, citizens of your kingdom. And we're called to show forth the reality of your presence and your gospel to the world, not just by what we say through our lips, but by lives that reflect this gospel. So help us to remember who we are. And then give us strength and show us, Lord. I know we want a plan, a blueprint of how to do that, but God, we got your spirit. Would you show each and every one of us what we can do to walk more and more in the reality of who we are in Christ so that the world can see you, that your light can shine more, that people who are without hope and without God can see the hope of the gospel and come to know God through faith in Christ as you use us to live it and you use us to preach it. We love you, Lord. Thank you for loving us first. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.